that I'm real and I'm standing right here and I know what the truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week. When we talk about magnetic, we're talking about Satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, worship of Satan, and the worship of dark forces. And we're recording. And I've got the movie bits, so that's great. Awesome. Yep. Fantastic. We're seeing a waveform. Yep. We're definitely seeing a waveform. Excellent. All right. And we're back. So pluses on all accounts. <laughs> and <laughs> thanks everyone for being patient with us while we sorted out all of our technical difficulties. <laughs> Nobody else actually knows anything about this because this is not a live broadcast. We could edit all of this out. It's it's like when a time traveler goes away for a long time and comes back. Did you miss me? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'll, I'm just going to have to be mindful of not getting too close to the microphone. That's good technique anyway. Yeah. With that microphone, at least. Yeah. So uh, what's been going on since, uh, since we last spoke this, a few hours ago? Uh, well, I caught up on a few episodes of What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, my gosh. I was going to tell you about that show earlier. I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna mention that to you. So when in the first episode, when they introduce the psychic vampire, and <laughs> and he's just lurking around the office, well, like a, like engaging in these absolutely ridiculous conversations with people and making them so uncomfortable, and then you see him just sort of like grinding the pencil sharpener. <laughs> he is truly a work of art. He he might be my favorite character in He's terms of absolutely my pure favorite comedy. character. Yeah, this is <laughs> and when they when they were going to drink the blood, they got those uh, the virgin larpers, and they were going to drink the blood, <laughs> and then they realized that the psychic vampire had got to them first, and they're like, oh well, forget this. They have no nutritional value now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's already drained them. <laughs> And I love how they always say his full name uh, every time. I know. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. Yeah, that that's a ridiculous show. It, it really is. Yeah, it's it's too good. It reminds me of some of the better parts of IT Crowd. The, and yeah. that, that's what that's yeah. what I really like about it. Yeah. And uh of course you have to see while we're on the subject, black books. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you haven't. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Welcome to episode one of the Wet Wired podcast, Productivity Porn and the Protestant Ethic. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. The first thing I wanted to talk about was this, uh, this article that I saw recently in Reuters revealing that OAN, the right-leaning Trump network, is almost entirely funded by AT&T. There was a hearing, uh, a deposition in 2019 where the chief executive, Robert Herring Sr., testified that the inspiration to launch OAN in 2013 came from AT&T executives. So this is from Herring. He said, they told us they wanted a conservative network. They only had one, which was Fox News, and they had seven others on the left-wing side. When they said that, I jumped to it and built one. The 2019 deposition was a labor suit unrelated to AT&T, but during that time, 
Herring was asked to testify, and he said that the reason that they created OAN was, number one, to make money, and number two is that AT&T told us they wanted a conservative network. After being on the air for quite a while and also having a YouTube channel, YouTube suspended OAN from making money off of its YouTube channel. They demonetized it for, among other things, repeatedly violating its COVID-19 policy, which prohibits content claiming that there's a guaranteed cure for COVID-19. OEN touts hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malarial drug promoted by Trump, without scientific evidence as a cure for COVID. Herring and his adult sons own and operate OAN, a subsidiary of their closely held San Diego-based Herring Networks. Their AT&T deal includes Herring's other network, a Little Watch lifestyle channel, AWE. The Herring's declined interview requests from Reuters. Later on, there was another hearing in February 2020, where a jury found that OAN had wrongfully fired a producer for filing a racial complaint. And during that time, the, the jury was considering punitive damages. To determine the appropriate penalty, they heard testimony about OAN's financial condition from one of their accountants. The accountant said, in addition to testifying that AT&T provided 90% of Herring Networks' income, the accountant said that the... 90%. 90%, yeah. The accountant also said that the company's book value, which is the net value of its assets, was a modest $16.6 million, and that's from the Reuters article also. After this story was published, AT&T issued a statement saying it has, quote, never had a financial interest in OAN success and does not, quote, fund OAN. So from AT&T's statement, it sounds like they're relying on a very narrow definition of the word fund. Yeah. They don't seem to have any sort of actual financial stake in OAN, but there's obviously a vested interest in the network succeeding or else they wouldn't have asked for it to be created in the first place. They wanted something that was going to catch the more fringe people that even Fox News wasn't satisfying, with something even more conservative. And especially after the 2016 election, when Trump took office, there was really a, uh, a demand for more content related to this more iconoclastic version of the, of the Republican Party. This far-right group, too, I mean, is the ideal demographic, their loyalty to the brand. Right. I mean, they're already fanatic. I mean, in the sense that they're, they are devoted fans. They are fanatics. Yeah. You might as well have a channel related to cosplay or something like that. You're attracting the same sort of fervor from your audience. Yeah, absolutely. Comparing MAGA people to cosplayers is probably really accurate. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Especially... Uh, except one crowd is friendly. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of these groups decides to storm the Capitol. You figure out which one that was. <laughs> yeah. The other likes Firefly. <laughs> yeah, the other, exactly. The other's a brown coats. <laughs> that was a nerd card getting thrown on the table. <laughs> so obviously AT&T is not is not acting ideologically about this. They weren't trying to push a conservative agenda, let alone a, an ultra-conservative or a MAGA agenda, however somebody wants to see themselves. Because they have plenty of what would be considered politically centrist or even you know slightly left-leaning programming also. So the only reason that they could have left as a motivation would be financial interest. 
This is where that very narrow definition of fund, I mean, that's a legalistic argument that they're, or statement that they're making, that they don't, they don't have a stake in OAN, but at the same time, they're going to do better if OAN exists and is successful. That's really what right. it is. You know? right. So they're just acting out of self-interest. The things that really stood out of this, other than that OAN would cease to exist if it weren't for AT&T's, uh, the revenue coming from AT&T, the thing that stood out is that the book value of OAN is so small. 16.6 million. I don't know a lot about television stations, but this seems to be a very small amount of money. That's the entire valuation. We're that's, the, about, that's the valuation the of everything. Sheet. Yeah, this is, all, this is all of it. The net value of its assets. This is all of its profits compared to all of its overhead. And it's only worth $16.6 million. So even if we assume that Herring and his sons are stashing money all over the place, hiding assets from the IRS and keeping things off the books, this is not some billion dollar or multi-million, multi-billion dollar media empire. The return on investment on this sort of a thing in and of itself is not only a a drop in the bucket, it's unnoticeable for a corporation as large as AT&T. They wouldn't even see it. They'd lose it in the couch cushions. This very modest-sized television channel that has something of a YouTube presence, I don't know how many subscribers they have on YouTube or how many views their videos are getting. This very small network was very influential in the audits that took place in Arizona recently. We have this audit that occupied everybody's attention in, the, in mainstream media for weeks and months talking about this audit. Every, you know, every couple of days, there was some little piece of news about the, the status of the audit or some, some sort of intrigue about whether or not this company, Cyber Ninjas, was actually performing a, a legitimate audit or if they had flaws in their processes or what some state senator like Wendy Rogers from Arizona was talking about on Twitter or on her Gitter account. All these different connections. There was so much talk about this. It occupied so many people's attention for such a stretch of time in this era of a 24-hour news cycle. But yet we kept coming back to this ongoing audit. Of course, the audit turned up nothing. In fact, it, it, it revealed more votes for Biden than were previously counted in the, in the general <laughs> election. And it actually took a few votes away from Trump. I think about 100 or so. It actually made Bi- the, the margin of Biden's win greater than it had been previously. And these are, these are planting uh, something like seeds or anchors, if you will, that, that create a, a sort of media foci. Yeah, where, where that's they, true. They, they ripple out. The thing about OAN, though, is that it's OAN that is largely doing this. And they're not alone. I mean, obviously, the Daily Caller, the Daily Wire, Newsmax, Breitbart. There's a Fox News themselves. There's a lot of different outlets pushing this narrative that there was fraud that was committed during this election. I mean, aside from Trump himself and his letters from the editor that he posts from (laughs) (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. There's a lot of different outlets that are pushing this this narrative about election fraud. But OAN has been really vocal about this. Yeah, in in, t- in in places where Newsmax has actually sort of pulled back, and Fox News have pulled back, probably at the under the advice of their attorneys from their legal department, <laughs> OAN just keeps leaning into it. They just keep leaning right into that storyline, 
all these other narratives that are really just contrary positions or contrarian positions to the mainstream narrative. They pushed hydroxychloroquine until everybody was tired of hearing about it, even their base was. And now they're pushing yeah. ivermectin in the same way. And they're anti-vax because of something. This is a very small network that ha is having an outsized effect on the conversation by providing and reinforcing these stories to the people that are watching it. It really uh, reminds me of uh, Noam Chomsky's book, which is a few decades old at this point, Manufacturing Consent. What's peculiar about this to me is that it's, it's kind of topsy-turvy to what he describes in, in that book, where in that book, the way that you're going to uh, control your, your interests, if you're a, a corporation or if you're, you know, you're a CEO or a shareholder of major international corporate interests, you're doing it through buying ads. It's not even necessarily that you need to sell to people the idea or, or create propaganda, although that happens too. And there doesn't even have to be a conspiracy. All you have to do to influence the media output is buy ads to make conflicting interests a problem for anybody who might air something that's a problem for you. I think of the example of uh, Lockheed Martin placing ads on TV. <laughs> they have everybody they need to talk to on speed dial. Right. Yeah. So they've already, they're, they're, they've already bought all the senators and representatives. The only thing that's happening there is that buying ad space means that that outlet is going to be reluctant to say something negative about their sponsors. But this one here seems to have quite a, a different model this is all, of, of revenue. Yeah, this is all ideology, I think. I think, you know, I, I haven't watched OAN in a while here. I don't know who's advertising on them other than, you know, Mike Lindell. <laughs> which is my pillow commercials, I think. I know that that's one of the places that has not cut his advertising, you know, that has not cut his commercials. <laughs> yeah. Where else their money comes from? I don't know. I mean, according to testimony from their own accountant, 90% of their revenue is coming from AT&T. The emphasis here is is revenue. It's not even, they're not even buying shares. No. It's this, not even investment revenue. in the company. Yeah. It's revenue. And they're, and they're not even, they're not even buying ad space or nope. something. It's just, they're not. They're purchasing the existence of this network. Another way to look at it is that it is a subsidy. It's AT&T's welfare for OAN. AT&T is subsidizing this far-right conservative network. They're directly responsible for creating this network in the first place. And it's not like somebody couldn't create a conservative network without AT&T. I don't think AT&T is responsible for the creation of Newsmax. I don't think that AT&T has any ideological objectives. Uh, you know, I really, it really doesn't, it just doesn't seem that way considering the other channels that they have on DirecTV. This is definitely an example of what it looks like when a corporation has extremely narrow self-interests. These are self-maximizing interests. It is all about how well AT&T is doing. It is all about how, how much money AT&T is making for its shareholders. It's not surprising at all that they would take advantage of an audience and initiate the creation of a network just because they, they know that the people are there to watch it. So they went and found somebody and enlisted that guy, you know, this guy Herring's help to create it. And it's also not surprising that they would have absolutely no concern for any downstream effects. The messaging that, that OAN was spreading directly before all of those people forced their way into the Capitol building. 
they directly spread the same messaging that was being pushed on, you know, through social media and led to this fervor that later resulted in people forcing their way into the Capitol. We were talking about Citizens United before. Since corporations are now people, if we're going to treat AT&T as if it's a person, a person that does nothing but act in their own self-interest, doesn't have any regard for the well-being of others, and doesn't care about consequences or, or, or anything like that, just simply just willfully acting in the world, that person would be a sociopath. This, this is a sociopathic yeah. thing, but yet it is entirely expected based on the, the type of economic system that we're working with right now. I'm not trying to bash capitalism as an idea. What I am bashing is capitalism with no constraints. Though, to be clear, I probably am bashing capitalism. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I know that. And I'm not comfortable with saying that OAN shouldn't be allowed oh, to no. say these things, that they should be censored. No, not at all. I'm not comfortable with saying that either. But I can't get by the fact that OAN would not be saying these things were it not for the instigation of AT&T executives and the complete financial support from AT&T. If AT&T decided that, okay, they're done, OAN would close its doors. There would be no more network because there isn't that much of a base that's going to support the advertising. Nobody wants to advertise on this crappy little network. No, people don't want to be associated with what we have to re keep reminding ourselves are fringe yeah. politics. This is a very loud minority of people. It is, doesn't represent most people in the, in the United States, even Republicans. It doesn't represent them. It makes me think of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals in terms of this crowd that we're discussing here. Saul is, is talking about how there are two forms of political forces that are going to transform things. You either have resources or you have people. And if you don't have resources, you better have people. And if you don't have people, then you need to look like you have people. The smaller your crowd, the louder you need to be. This crowd is about as loud as it gets. They're taking it right out of the Sololinsky playbook here, the Rules for Radicals playbook. I mean, they're on the other end of the spectrum altogether. But it doesn't matter. They have the same relationship to the majority. They have a minority, they have a minority ideology that they're trying to push on a larger body of people. He gives an example in that same book of something along the lines of a bunch of activists going into an opera theater, and they'd eaten a lot of beans uh -huh. prior to going in there, and they fart up the whole place. <laughs> I don't remember what they were protesting, but it was, it was just this big, boisterous nonsense. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they, it got noticed. And it gets noticed, and that's exactly it, is that these incredibly vocal minorities manage to dominate our conversations and we end up talking about whatever shit they're spitting out that becomes just what's going on for everybody else it can easily lead people to think that this is most people or or this is a lot of people even it's not that it's not a sizable portion of people it is but it is still definitely a minority that have these opinions the recount they're not even recounts because these are third party driven audits they have some support behind them in places like Georgia, and I, I think there's trying to drum up some support for this in Michigan as well. So we might see more of these audits in the not-too-distant future. Just because we see them doesn't mean that most people are behind this. In Arizona, it wasn't like this audit was funded by the people in the state of Arizona solely. 
This is all outside money that's paying for this to happen. All of this outside money descends on this one area to recount these votes, to pay for this process of recounting these votes and conducting this quote-unquote audit. And then all of this money will descend on Georgia if they decide to go forward with it there. This isn't a local community that is just outraged at how horrible their election was run. In fact, most of the officials in these places continue to stand by the election results and say that they were as well run as they possibly could be. Including some of the Republicans by quite a few. Specifically the Republicans. Yeah, he's like, yeah. It's, you know, it's that conversation that Trump had with the election officials in Georgia when he was trying to get them to do a recount. <laughs> and they kept telling him, everything was good. You lost. That's just how it goes. And he was saying, how can we make this not that? The Protestant Ethic. Our story is opening in 1905 with Max Weber, who wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. At the time, we're in the turn of the century. Keep in mind, we're within a few decades of the invention of the modern bicycle as we know it, the modern motor car, the invention of the airplane. We've got a lot of things happening around the turn of the century. At this time, we're only about 100 years after the Industrial Revolution. Weber is observing this ethos that seems to drive the economic system in which we live in the Western world. He's asking the question, what are the origins of this ethic? And we might even say this mythos that is driving, as he describes it, the spirit of capitalism. He observes a few things that are concurrent at the same time, that, that predate capitalism by a bit, and become the driving force. Marx, on the one hand, is describing a culture that responds to changes in technology and capital and the means of production. And Weber is turning that on its head a little bit and saying that the culture instigates this. Weber is describing a attitude that was really necessary to create this industrial capitalism that would be born from this cultural transformation. He ascribes it to the Protestant ethic. He also ascribes it interwoven with a new rational, scientific, systematic approach to capital and labor, which he calls it rationalism. He goes at length to describe the distinctions between what he's calling the Occident and the Orient, but it's really the Western world and the rest of the world is really what right. he means. Yeah, he doesn't mean the East. He means everything else. <laughs> he means everything else. <laughs> yeah. At the time, keeping in mind, this is 1905, he's sort of complaining uh, <laughs> that he doesn't really have access to the sort of literature and information that he wants. At least it's not even translated for him in, in German or whatever languages he might otherwise speak. I don't really know. He's limited in his information of the rest of the world. Nevertheless, the information that he is able to access and the books that he's reading and all the rest of it are all suggesting that we have this sort of systematic approach and scientific approach that is novel globally in the Western world, starting with the Hellenic world and moving forward, receding, and then coming back, uh, notably with the Renaissance and the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. This sort of rational approach to institutions and to creating the society not out of emotion and not out of the whims of, of monarchs and the rest of it, although that was absolutely happening, but more 
creating these institutions and creating this world based on what we now understand to be the scientific method or something similar to it that was to a large degree novel at the time, even though elements of it have always existed. To understand the Protestant ethic, we need to kind of understand the schism that happened, starting with Luther and the schism between Catholicism and Protestantism. What needed to happen was upending traditional values. Prior to the development of capitalism, what traditional values to a large degree meant were that people generally believed the idea that you work to live, you don't live to work. That idea really didn't provide the right cultural motivation and fuel that would spur on the kind of industrial growth that would come in later centuries. So where do we get this transformation of, of this ethos? We have an observation that Weber made uh, where he was talking about how uh, agrarian, feudal, pre-industrial, pre-capitalist landowners would raise the peace rate for working land, and they would hope that it would increase the productivity. What he observed, or what they observed, was that the opposite happened. They increased the peace rate, and people ended up working less because they had to work less to satisfy their daily needs and wants. The attitude was that you would work to satisfy your needs, and maybe a little bit more. And then once you're finished satisfying those needs, you quit working. And that idea is not the modern ethos. The spirit of it was centered around the idea of the calling. The calling is almost a Disney-esque idea of my life's purpose that was kind of a novel concept at that time. We can quote Weber as, as saying, um, and I edited this a little bit, but Weber said, The calling is an obligation that the individual is supposed to feel and does feel towards the content of his professional activity. In this, we find that the calling is emblematic of, we, we can see it embodied in, in uh, uh, how we introduce ourselves in the United States so very often to, to other people. Hi, hello, how are you? Something about the weather, pleasantries. What do you do for a living? There it is. That's your calling. What do you do for a living? That's our opening greeting with people. And it's, it's meant as sort of defining yourself as a being, as, as a character. Your work is what you are. This is who you are. That is based on the idea of the Protestant idea. And I, and I don't even want to say Protestant per se, because the ideas that are really influential here are coming out of Calvinism, a little bit later, and Puritanism. Another quote from Weber that exemplifies this is, The fulfillment of worldly duties is, under all circumstances, the only way to live acceptably to God. We can understand this to mean that the harder you work, the more God is happy. And sacrificing yourself, uh, I forget the Latin term for it, but there's a specific Latin term that essentially suggests that self-sacrifice is the way to appease God. This particular self-sacrifice is through hard work. A little bit later, Weber talks about uh, another Calvinist concept where he says, Brotherly love since it may only be practiced for the glory of God and not in the service of the flesh, is expressed in the first place in the fulfillment of the daily tasks given by the lex naturae, which is one of the Calvinist works that's pivotal. And in the process, this 
fulfillment assumes a peculiarly objective and impersonal character. So we have this introduction of a rational approach to God, which again is kind of unprecedented. It, it's, it's sort of, well, rationalizing God in many ways. So we, we, we kind of introduce this, this huge shift from the Catholic transactionalism uh, and, and free will. So, for example, think of indulgences and confession and things like that, where you're interacting with the church to gain favor with God. But uh, there is really this prevalent idea of free will, where you can commit sins and then you can redeem yourself. And maybe at the end of the, your life, they weigh the scale between the two things. And whichever, whichever is heavier, then that's how that works. Really coming out of Calvinism, we have this idea of predeterminism, that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and has set everything in motion and has a master plan, so anybody who's going to be a sinner is already predestined to be a sinner. And anybody who's going to have grace, which is a huge emphasis in this discussion, is going to have grace. So either you're going to hell or going to heaven, but it's already going to happen. It just has to play out. So how, how does this work then with encouraging people to work more, even though everything has already been established? Everybody's destiny is already written. So how can, that, that's the thing, that's something that I've always wondered about that never quite makes sense to me is how this idea of grace really uh, uh, is introduced into this incredibly de deterministic worldview. Because my understanding is that grace is something that comes from outside. It's extra. So you have this person who is already on these train tracks. This is how their life is going to go. But yet we're telling them to accept God and that this sort of grace is going to come in and influence the course of their actions. So maybe they, they can go off the rails and be inauthentic to themselves and grace will keep them on the tracks. And hard work is one of the ways that you can attract the attract grace. Yeah, I, I too think it's paradoxical. To me, it doesn't seem so much like a paradox. It just seems like there's missing pieces in my in my picture, and I don't know if it's explained anywhere. I didn't pick up anywhere along this journey <laughs> in answer to that question, and uh, I was I was really stumbling over that exact question myself. But sadly, I didn't I didn't reach any. <laughs> <laughs> any reconciliation maybe the calvinists don't either yeah you know, like it's just like maybe they just <laughs> keep on true. maybe they just keep on keeping on and that's just how it goes <laughs> yeah it's a mystery I, I mean, I, <laughs> well that actually is an inter is interesting point because uh the keep on keeping on idea is one of the pivotal principles uh -huh. that uh formed the protestant ethic endure the suffering and persevere that is one of the key tenets that really forms this ethic related to the idea of this sort of transaction with god this is this is another thing where in in the catholicism that this that is the root of this schism we have this sort of relationship with the church as an intermediary with god Protestantism is much more individualistic, whereas the preceding Catholicism really had much more of a uh, uh, 
not only the transactional character that I was describing before, not only with God, but transactional with the church as an intermediary through God, but as also a sort of collectivist type of understanding, where even though the church itself was a central authority and was not really collectivist, it was it was understood to be relatively collectivist in its outlook and its worldview. And the Calvinist approach and the Puritanist approach is much more individualistic. Uh, it's much a, a it's a one on one Zoom call with God, and that is a radically different idea that also drives the kind of rugged individualism narrative that we see emerging in the United States or later emerging in the United States, like everywhere right now, <laughs> and and yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and elsewhere as well. That rugged individualism was well and good when we're talking about Davy Crockett and then Teddy Roosevelt and people like that. <laughs> but now, you know, we, we look around and we see every every type of example of self-made man, people at least that want to convince others that they're self-made. And then at, at the far extremes, we see some really fringe people that have this idea that they are you know, an entirely sovereign citizen and somehow exempt from the laws of the country. This is the, uh, the, the current furthest extent of rugged individualism in the U.S. is the sovereign citizen movement. Yeah. <laughs> and on top of it, there's not even individualism or sovereignty. I mean, first of all, I know, I know. it's it's all an I, imaginary. We can thing. beat a dead horse about that. Yeah. One and oh yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about sovereign citizens at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that point, I mean, we, what we also kind of find here is the concept of brotherly love and uh, worship of God through work. Uh, so Weber has another comment on this. The idea of work as a form of salvation is really the emphasis here. Weber offers us this insight from the point of view of the Calvinists. The real moral objection is to relaxation and the security of possession, the enjoyment of wealth with the consequence of idleness and the temptations of the flesh, above all, of distraction from pursuit of a righteous life. In fact, it is only because possession involves this danger of relaxation that it is objectionable at all. So what, what's going on here is that we think of capitalism as being driven by greed, as the as the as the ethos of capitalism, which there's plenty of that to go around, but greed has existed long before capitalism. What Weber is talking about here is two things going on: a rational ap approach to labor, where it, it becomes scientific, and he's also talking about the idea of uh, uh, scientific in, in terms of this this sort of detached approach to it. Uh, but he's also talking about having wealth is not a problem. It's wealth making you lazy. That's a problem. Uh, which is an interesting distinction. Have as much wealth, wealth as you like, that's not a problem. Just as long as you don't get lazy. In fact, uh, a little bit later on, he, he elaborates on that very same thing. Another quote, Not leisure and enjoyment, but only activity, serves to increase the glory of God, according to the definite manifestations of his will. Waste of time is the first... And, in principle, the deadliest of sins. 
So there's a vilification of leisure itself going on in this ethic where you, you can't even take a break without going against God. You're not allowed to get tired. You're not allowed to want to change your career because your job's unfulfilling. None of it. <laughs> none of it. Yeah, none of it. There, there is, there is no possibility for it. And there is also this railing against the. Uh, at that point, you know, this sort of developing leisure class, sort of wealthy landlords, often coming from nobility, that controlled these large estates and didn't really do anything with their time. They just had people working for them that farmed fields, and they just made money off of all of this. It was a rentier society. You had this entire class of people that was simply collecting rents from others, and that's all they did. They were able to exist simply because they had resources. They had this land that other people would rent from them. Yeah, and we could even say that part of this philosophy, which, which is divergent from the, the previous traditional ideas, um, or traditional at that time, the previous ideas really had human beings and individuals as much more malleable and temporal. When we're discussing this from the point of view of, of this Protestant ethos, this Protestant ethic, the idea of predeterminism also says that a, it has an essentialist view of the individual. To take, for example, the idea of the criminal as we understand the criminal today in the modern zeitgeist, you, you look at a person who commits some sort of a crime, uh, some sort of a behavior that is contrary to the social norms or the laws or whatever it is. Maybe they steal or kill a person or some kind of violence or whatever it is. And they commit this act in one instance. Perhaps it takes five minutes, perhaps 10 days, whatever it is. This point in time where they commit this act is when that person is a criminal. They're criminal while they're committing the crime. This point of view says that as soon as that occurs, not only are they a criminal for the rest of their lives, but they were a criminal before that point. Even before they committed the crime, yeah. Even before they committed the crime. So they're essentially a criminal. It's, it's part of their essential being. And we, we see the influence of this idea in the industrial complex of the United States and, and the attitudes in the United States towards the uh, so-called criminal justice system. We have roughly a quarter of the world's population of inmates, uh, despite having, I, I don't remember what percentage, but a very small percentage of the whole world's population. Right. And on top of that, we have more, not only per capita, by, but also by volume, more inmates than any other country on earth. I mean, that includes China, North Korea, Iran, pick a country that we, we might easily vilify for locking up prisoners. We've got more by a lot. Not just more in total numbers. We have more percentage-wise. We lock up a, a much higher percentage of our population than any other country. And percentage, yeah, both. It's extraordinary. I think that all of this speaks to this same attitude. The idea of sinfulness and the idea of criminality is also intertwined with the idea of work. We other people, we, we cast people out of our group based on this exclusionary metric of 
whether or not they're like us, are they are they part of our tribe? And this metric in this this ethos really says that if you're lazy, then you're a problem. Uh, how we define lazy is: Are you working yourself to the bone? No, you're lazy. Do, do you have two jobs and six side hustles? No. Wow, you're lazy. <laughs> and, and and this is a real problem uh, for uh, anybody on the other side of that, obviously. But it's really quite beneficial to those who own the capital and those who are at the top of this uh, emerging or soon-to-be-emerging economic system out of this, effectively, this, this merchant class that's, that's, at that time, in Europe, dominated by Protestant. Or at least according to Weber. I, I didn't fact-check him on that. I'm not entirely sure. But I, I think that the narrative still holds essentially correct about what is the origin of this myth. It definitely seems they're, like they're driving it. I think that it's sort of anecdotal, but it may be not so anecdotal to look at the example of the nations that are historically associated with Protestantism in, just in Europe, and then the European nations that, that continued to be associated with Catholicism. The environments in these countries are very different. Yeah. The attitude that, that the average person has towards work is very different. The attitudes that the societies as a whole have towards work are very different between, say, the Netherlands and Spain. Yeah. Or Germany and Italy. Yeah. Germany is definitely changing, and there is an influence of, of secular humanism and socialist ideas in Scandinavian countries specifically that has led to increases in, in vacation time and decreases in work hours, finding more reasons basically to be away from work to not make it the central, the central yeah. defining focus of everyone's life. I know Germany has experimented with four-day work weeks. I don't know if that's continued or not, but I know at one point it was experimented with. And I know that in the Netherlands, there's a great deal of vacation time available. The attitudes in countries like Spain, where work is really not the main thing that people do. The main thing that people do is socialize. It's my understanding that it's very similar yeah. in Italy as well. The main focus of life is not what you do for a living. This is not everybody's main concern. They have a very different uh, place for work. We really haven't done that in the United States. Well, yeah, especially in the context of when, when you're clocking out, when the, when the whistle blows and, and you're going home, here we, we really have a total integration in our lives between work and non-work. We talk about work-life balance and things like that, but it's not really it's not really going on. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the work-life balance thing catches my attention whenever people say this because I hear work-life balance or I hear people say it, but how I interpret that every single time is not how I can balance my home life versus my work life, but how I can meet these responsibilities in my life or obligations or even desires as far as parents wanting to spend time with their children and spouses wanting to spend time with each other. 
how I can manage to accommodate that and still work yeah. <laughs> more than my coworkers do. It's really like every time people talk about work-life balance, they're typically talking about finding a way so that they can work more without impinging on, on this very narrow slice of their life that they spend with family and friends. Which is treated as an exception, which is treated as sort of a relief from what they're doing. Yeah. Even this expression, work-life balance, there is so much privilege. There, that is a luxury. Yeah. Typically, we hear that term in, in middle and upper middle class uh, office spaces. Absolutely. You don't hear anybody talking about work-life balance when they have three jobs. You know, one's at a fast food restaurant. The other one's cleaning an office building after hours. And then when they're not doing those two jobs, they're driving yeah. an Uber. And, and, and uh, I'd love to hear them tell their boss at the fast food restaurant uh, that they need a little more time for their work-life balance. They don't have the luxury of having, of having a conversation like that for a lot of reasons, for a lot of socioeconomic Absolutely. reasons and a lot of, a lot of labor and, and management reasons as well. They have no power in any of these situations. They have no leverage to be able to demand things for themselves that they want. That one catches my ears in the same way as when I hear somebody trying to talk about find your passion or something like that <laughs> and follow your heart you pompous motherfucker. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. You are coming at this from a position that is totally detached from the reality that the vast majority of people on this planet will yeah, ever and, experience. And, and, and I, love the, I love the crunchy idea of, oh, just pack up and go travel the world. With what money? Like, hashtag van life. <laughs> hashtag, you know, living my best life. <laughs> that stuff, like, it really yeah. rubs me the wrong way. I have a few more things to, to discuss with Weber. And in fact, a, a quote that's just on the nose for what we're just talking about, um, and especially with the socializing part. Oh, good. He says, The most trifling actions that affect a man's credit are to be regarded the, the sound of your hammer at 5 a.m. in the morning or at 8 at night heard by a creditor, makes him easy six months longer. But if he sees you at a billiard table or hears you in a tavern when you should be at work, then he sends for his money the next day. And, and this is exactly uh, <laughs> what we're talking about, where you clock out, but you never really clock out because your creditors and your landlord right. and everybody else... Uh, has their eye out, but not just that, even if they're not looking, it's, it's, it's part of this cultural pressure, uh, to constantly be performing as such. And then, uh, just a couple of other things I want to mention here. One thing that like, just to, to follow up on that is that this is a virtue ethic. When we talk about this idea of work versus leisure yeah. or, you know, as they would say, work versus laziness, we're talking about the person with virtue and the person without virtue virtue and sin. For obvious reasons, we associate this Protestant ethic with, with working, specifically. But if we look at it in terms of being a virtue ethic, then we apply this all over the place, and without even noticing it, we apply yeah. it to people that are overweight. People that are overweight are not allowed to eat. They are, by definition, 
not virtuous people because of their because they're considered to have overindulged and overindulging is treated exactly the same way as over as not working enough they haven't worked enough they they've been too leisurely and that's why they're overweight and so they have these expectations that are applied to them yeah very quietly regardless of all all of this body positive messaging that that people are attempting to push forward into social situations the only reason they that they, they feel like they have to push these these body positive messages is because the prevailing message the underlying current of the entire society that we live in is that is that overweight people are are inherently not virtuous yeah this same uh, virtue and or or even to take it back to weber a bit contrast between grace and sinfulness uh, as such really contributes to the underlying myth of meritocracy that drives the myth of capitalism itself. I mean, uh, the idea that everyone gets what they deserve. If you're wealthy, it's because you worked hard and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And if you're poor, it's because you're lazy, despite the fact that you're working three jobs that are harder than anything that the guy in the office is doing. Some of this has actually changed because we don't have a leisure class anymore. We don't. Yeah. The the richest people, the richest people that we that we can think of, when we think of somebody like a Bezos or a Musk or something like that, even the, you know this older crowd of people like a Bill Gates, who's the uh, the investment guy, the Oracle of Omaha. Oh. <laughs> uh, so with the W, um... Warren Buffett. So when we th- when we think of somebody like Buffett as well. These are people that we associate with a great deal of work. They're doing, they're, they're a lot of times the, the wealthiest people in our society are actually working as hard or harder than most other people. Elon Musk regularly puts in, you know, at least according to what most people are saying about him, you know, I don't hear anybody saying that he's lying when he talks about working 80 plus hours a week. We have this example of the richest person in the world works more than most everybody else does. And so we, we see that like of this, course this, not working this narrative billions of dollars more. <laughs> but this this is how this narrative plays in, and I, I I don't disagree with you. I don't think anybody is is working hard enough to earn that amount of money. But he deserves it because he is working so hard. That same yeah. story that everybody gets like you said, everybody gets what they deserve. This is all part of this system. He is virtuous because of his actions, because of the work that he does in the world. And it's the same thing with, with somebody like Bezos or name the billionaire, yeah. Peter Thiel, or Jack Ma in China. Whoever the person is, they got what's coming to them. It is by its nature treated as if it's just. Yeah. This is what he deserves. These poor people who work so much, they're not seen the same way. They're seen as if they, they didn't work right. They didn't do it correctly. Yeah. And that's, that's where they're failing. It's almost a no true Scotsman argument to a certain degree. Yeah, the, you have this exaltation of, of slyness or cunning. Elon Musk works hard, but he works smart. And that's why he deserves all of this. The person with three jobs working at the restaurant and being a janitor and then doing TaskRabbit or something like that, or delivering pizzas, they, 
they didn't work smart. They're working hard, but they're working stupidly. So they, they deserve exactly what they're getting. That's their station in life and everything's warranted. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even on, on that note, we can examine the, the idea of how many people have to be working in such a way where in the United States, for example, uh, we have uh, 40% of the population that cannot afford an unexpected $400 expense. And 44% are considered low-wage workers in the United States. That really kind of speaks to the idea of this is, this is really a game of musical chairs here. Uh, but really not the crux of this, though. I mean, we can talk about capitalism days and days and days. Here, we're, we're interested in, in what is the ethos that's driving this, this system. Uh, what do we need to believe to continue to do what we're doing? And prior to capitalism, at least as Weber was describing it, uh, we had artisans and craft persons uh, who were maybe working six hours a day or something like that. But it was it was much more leisurely. You work until it's done, and then you quit. Kind of an attitude, uh, which we still, to a certain degree, see today in certain areas of Europe, like we were describing. What really shifted here is the asceticism that was the foundational role in this ethic that drove this sort of self-suffering idea. Uh, Weber said, asceticism looked upon the pursuit of wealth as an ends in itself as highly reprehensible, but the attainment of it is a fruit of labor in a calling was a sign of God's blessing. So here Weber's telling us that, uh, the, the idea was that if you're rich, it's because you deserve to be rich. Looking for wealth for the sake of looking for wealth is abhorrent, but if you happen to get wealth, well, it's because God is blessing your hard work. We can understand here that they understand the individual as an instrument of God, where all of their hard work is an expression. of. So he kind of goes on a little bit later. And even more important, the religious valuation of restless Continuous, systematic work in a worldly calling was the highest means to asceticism and, at the same time, the surest and most evident proof of rebirth in genuine faith must have been the most powerful conceivable lever for the expansion of that attitude towards life, which we have here called the spirit of capitalism. I think that uh, I'll put a little bow tie on, on Weber uh, with this quote talks about towards the end of the book the puritan wanted to work in a calling we are forced to do so for when asceticism was carried out of the monastic cell into everyday life it began to dominate worldly morality and it did its part in building the tremendous cosmos of the moral economic order that word that weber uses the spirit of capitalism it evokes this idea of the the animus, this driving force that is moving capitalism forward, it's propelling capitalism along the way. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't rely on a on a simplistic explanation of just simply calling it greed. I think that we can easily pass it off, like you were mentioning earlier. That's all people are trying to do. I've never been convinced that greed motivates anybody. Yeah. We have a system now where you know maybe Weber was was right in that time period. But I think in addition to 
what Weber was describing as a motivating force for capitalism is this uh, this desire to to gain power over one's life. Uh, it's a desire for a person to try to somehow gain more of what is really an illusion, but a convincing illusion that they control the destiny in their life. So I think that you have these two strains that are traveling together simultaneously. And at one point, one is more influential. And then at another point, the other is. Sometimes people are maybe outside of their awareness. They're motivated by trying to gain more power over others. They want to accumulate wealth so that they can create what they think of as more stability in their lives. When they want to explain why they're, they're getting this wealth to others, or when they want to talk about what they admire in other people who have acquired wealth, then they start talking about virtues. Yeah, exactly. But I don't think that's what's motivating them. I don't think what motivates most people is virtue. I don't think virtue itself is a motivator. I, I think we've got two things going on here. I think we have the undercurrent yeah. of this unquestioned logic. When we talk about the, yeah. we're, the phrase work ethic, we're just dropping Protestant from in front of it. Right. There's only one work ethic that anybody is ever describing, right. and it's the one we're describing right now. And I think that the other component here is simple material necessity. Nobody's working mm -hmm. at that minimum wage job for the joy of life. <laughs> we have a spectrum here, it's the same spectrum of somebody satisfying their needs. But once you get to the point of satisfying your needs, then, then in relation to, to your needs, extra work or extra money, just like the artisan or the, you know, the, the peasant farmer that before they could convince people to work more, they only worked to the point that their needs were met and then any extra work didn't help them. Yeah. But now we, we've, we've actually created a system where we've invented more things to quote need. The needs are, are really never met. If you can keep working, keep working. All right. Now you have enough money to pay for shelter, pay for food, maybe pay for transportation, maybe a couple of, of luxury type desires, you know, unnecessary things, but things that you want. But then what about a college education for your children? What about uh, buying a house? What about moving to a better neighborhood? All of these are increases in needs. All of these are increasing the bottom line of, the, of just what it takes to live your life. Then we're talking about people who go beyond that point, who are, are accumulating amounts of money that they could never possibly spend in their lives. There is no imaginary needs that you could ever come up with that would ever equal the amount of money that they have. But yet they continue to acquire wealth. For some reason, $81 billion is enough. They want 82 or 90 billion. Yeah. Those extreme examples really illustrate the idea, but you could roll it back to somebody that they have $10 million, but now they want to have 15. Yep. You can never spend this money. Not in any sort of sensible way. Yes, there are things that you could buy that cost that that would take all of your money, like a large like a skyscraper or something like that. Yes, you could spend all of your money in a weekend. Where does this desire come from to get more? And this is why I say that the real motivation for those people is to continue to try to uh, 
to try to reinforce this idea of power over my own destiny, of self-determination, that they somehow can make themselves exempt from the concerns of the world by accumulating more and more wealth. I think that that's a very different kind of motivation than the, than the Protestant ethic. I think that that Protestant ethic is a story that we use to convince other people to work more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to, and to suffer longer hours and... Right, exactly. We want them to work harder, but like this sort of like top tier, this top tier of, of wealth, I don't think they're concerned with the virtue of their money in the same way that they would want somebody who is earning $30,000 a year to think about their money. And to shift it a little bit, we, we might even observe that the middle tiers are really operating on a consumption as identity. Absolutely. I actually wanted to hold off on some of that because I had an idea here. Oh, the, no, th that's totally fine. <laughs> I, Didn't mean to jump I, the I, I had an idea here. I, I, I specifically stopped myself from going in this particular direction because it's a wide open field that... I think would take another yeah. hour to talk about. And we're already at an hour and we're at an hour and 24 minutes right now. So I, yeah, I think yeah. we should make this part one and my section part two. Oh, that's what I think yes. we should do. I think we should, that, that actually is a, yeah, I think we should idea. plan another recording and then I'll, I'll take this, I'll edit it. But then I was thinking that, uh, for part two, I could just dive in with, you know, an introduction that we talked about Weber last week. Go listen to that episode and then dive right into Taylorism and what he was up to and the, you know, the sort of odd synchronicity that he was working on these things at the same time. Then go forward and discuss his ideas and then work all the way into the productivity porn. I really like the idea of focusing on these large, these large prevailing concepts that not many people are willing to peel back sufficiently to understand how they drive large swaths of our lives right now. Whole yeah. parts, whole areas of our lives are being driven by this. And I can just trail this out, you know, but like the one thing I wanted to mention is that in my own work experience, I have encountered this scenario a number of times of people sort of trying to guilt me into picking up an extra shift or work late yeah. or something like that. You know, can you stay a couple of extra hours because, you know, so-and-so called in sick tonight and now we need somebody for a while. Can you stay for a little bit? Can you work a double shift? It, it, they tend to lean on you with a couple of things. They will never come out and say like, you know, will you do the virtuous thing? They, they don't come out and do that, but what they do is <laughs> yeah. they'll try to, uh, to convince you that you're doing it for the team. Can you help us out? Yeah. But you see, it is exactly the same argument, but just, but, but just packaged in, in a more, in a more uh, uh, attractive form, at least as far as they're concerned. And it works over and over again. And it's always in the context, well, not always, but it's usually in the context of if you don't step up, you're hurting your fellow workers. It's never in the context of make the boss more money. Or, or anything else. Or, you know, save my ass because I, didn't, I can't find somebody to cover this shift. 
or something like that. You know, yeah. like in this case, I worked at a hospital that was a county facility, so there was nobody making more money. It was still the same kind of mentality. This is why I trying to tie the the Protestant ethic to more of an over like an overarching uh, virtue ethic that it is good to yeah. work more. You know, it is virtuous to work more. And then we can look at, well, other things are good too. Like being helpful, caring about your coworkers is also good. And if you don't do the, if you're not helpful, then you're not good. If you don't care about your coworkers yeah. and them being overburdened, you're not good. You probably know about this firsthand, but if you start doing government work or nonprofit work, that is where they really get the hooks in you. That they if sure you, do. especially yeah. with the, and in, in, in the nonprofit, not, not for profit area that where you're, you're doing, you're, you're doing something that is, that is a, a service to others. If you don't do this overwork mentality, if you're not overdoing it all the time, it's because you don't really care about these people. <laughs> don't you care enough about the cause? I mean, it's, it's, because, you, it's because you're, you know, you're some sort of a, of a tourist or a poser. You're not really in this for the right reasons, because yeah. if you were in it for the right reasons, you'd be putting in 70 hours a week like the rest of us are and not getting, co not getting paid overtime, you know, because we really care. Exactly. This is the sort of thing that we do to each other in, the, in these situations. We don't value this, this, uh, this time off. And, and it's like you were saying earlier, uh, one's occupation is synonymous with their identity. And, and people have a really hard time with this in, in the United States with even if you take vacation, it's like you've done something to somebody. You, you've, you, you, you're mistreating <laughs> them somehow. Yeah. You know, so that you can't even take time away from your, your allotted vacation that is part of your benefit package, as meager as it is, you can't even leave because you feel guilty that everybody else is going to be overworked while you're gone. They're going to have to do your job while you're, while you're gone. And not all environments are like this by any means. There's a, there are a lot of environments that are, I think, you know, the way that I see it, much healthier. They're not, they're sure. not nearly as dysfunctional as that. And I really see this as a dysfunction. I, I see this oh, yeah. as, you know, this is, yeah, you know, I don't know who said this, but, you know, like, I, I think at one point my father told me this. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you know, like, you know, no, nobody's going to like go to their deathbed wishing they spent more time at the office. Yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, this is That's great. This is this is not any, you know, this is not something somebody puts in on their tombstone saying, like, I'd wish I worked a few more hours. You know, yeah. this is that. But yet but yet this is exactly how we live. We live as if we would say something like that. We, we this is how we treat our jobs. And and so, you know, like I have a, um, you know, I've kind of a, a funny place for this sort of like, you know, the follow your heart thing that I was making fun of earlier, that this is, we need to have, you know, a realistic idea of work as, you know, in the same way I was talking about, you know, this is the mentality of people that have less money, that they, they, they work to get their needs met. They're not working to necessarily, uh, you know, like create some sort of sway over others or over their own circumstances. They're simply trying to get their needs met. Yeah, we, we I think we need to have this mentality again, where we are working enough enough 
to have a comfortable life and to not, you know, to try to, you know, reduce the hardships that, you know, that, that life brings us as much as we possibly can and no more. <laughs> this is, yeah. this is no more. And, 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 you know, this is, you know, anybody who signs up for the idea that I, you know, the way I'm describing it is really like, you know, you're, you're cutting yourself off from, you know, basically every career trajectory where you're going to get promoted at your job or you're going to get noticed for, you know, for how, you know, how well you did something or something like that, because that isn't your primary objective. And, you know, the, and, you know, I don't want to say follow your heart, but you might want to keep looking around for a job where the boss values something more in alignment with what your values are. And, And until you find that, you're probably going to have to do a lot of acting. You know, you're probably going to have to act as if you gave a shit about whatever your boss cares about, because uh, the, that, that that's really a, that's a situation I've been I found myself in a, a lot over, you know, over my working life is caring about shit. I don't give a fuck about, you know, this is, you know, the my the concerns that 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 bosses have, you know, that employers have are very different than the concerns that employees have. And. You, they're, but sometimes they're contradictory you have, interests. They, they they really can be, but sometimes you have to act like you care about that stuff, and then just turn that off as soon as you you walk out the door and go home. You know, as soon as you get off that Zoom call, you don't care about that shit anymore until you have to care about it again. You know, until there's you a, have to. There's a there's a there's a TikTok sound that's really popular right now that I absolutely fucking love. And it's this guy singing, cosplaying as a person who has their shit together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You know, there, there was, speaking of TikTok, there was, there was one not too terribly long ago, and it was a guy at Ikea. <laughs> and he was talking about the kinds of conversations that he would have with, with customers. And he did a series of these, and they were then they were all stitched together, and then they were spread on on other on other social on Instagram and Twitter and stuff. But the they were exceptional, yeah. You know, like absolutely exceptional. Like talking about like you know, like you know, you want to talk to my manager? I want to talk to you about having some manners. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah. And this is <laughs> the and and this is and, and I love that he has that scruffy face. With yeah. The, with well, the, he's it's because profession. he's no it's because he's no longer a TikTok or a, a TikTok, a no longer an IKEA employee. He's also a stand-up yeah. comedian. You know, like now he's like he's like doing his thing. He did, but he kept the polo. You know, so it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so he's wearing the IKEA polo in the in the you know, in the video. I think he is. I might it might just be the same color, but I think he actually has the work polo. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I think that's good for tonight. I'm, I think I'm, so too, and I'm, and I like your I'm, idea of part one, part two. I, yeah, I feel like um, even with this sort of B roll stuff that we just had right now, like that was another fifteen minutes. Yeah, you know, and, all, and, actually, and, and almost and twenty minutes. B roll. I feel like there were there were a couple of things in there that we could add that were pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, um, so so let's when you, uh, when you cut it all together. Let's uh, plan on meeting up again on tentatively at least on Thursday for another uh another planning kind of call um can we can we do it on friday um oh sorry it is friday it's friday yeah okay cool, cool, cool. yeah awesome so i, so I was f- just gonna say that next week uh speaking of 
making enough, I'm probably going to yeah. work Thursday. <laughs> yeah. So, so Friday, uh, uh, 11 to one year time. And then we'll, yeah. uh, yeah. So tentatively at least, you know, like I, depending on how things go around here, I might need to bump that to a different time, but, uh, it would either be Thursday night or Friday night would probably or, be I the mean, other time. Not to fuck up our order of operations here. Uh, but we could do um, part two. Yeah, we really could. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we have all the materials ready to rock. And we've already gone through it. Yeah. So I mean, it's up to you. That could happen. And that's what I was going to say. It's like, let's start off with the planning and then just, you know, and then maybe see about just doing the recording that time. And, yeah. you know, and go from there. The... Yeah. So then we could, we could have that one done and then, uh, and then I could work on editing that one. So actually, you know what, let's, you want to just do Thursday night? I could do Thursday night. Okay. I'll I'll be home around eight, eight thirty ish your time. Plus or minus. All right. So let's, uh, let's say. And maybe your animals will be settled. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, so let's just say, let's say nine o'clock. Uh, you, you said you're going to be eight eight thirty my time. Yeah, your time. Oh, all right. So let's say let's say eight o'clock your time then. So nine o'clock my time. Okay. Yeah. If that's not too late for you, that's totally no, 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 no. That'll work. And it's a lot earlier than right now. So yeah, I'm sure. I'm just gonna bump that, and then I'll send you an update on the calendar. Cool. So yeah, so I, that, that. I just and, I just put us down for rough, roughly nine to eleven. Perfect. And and uh, I'll point out, uh, even though we had our dress rehearsal, and this one I think was very different from the last one. It was. Yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like we kind of this is an improvement. Yeah, it is. It is. I I'm, I feel I'm, like I'm, our I'm flow gonna... was really good. I want you to do this for me and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it uh, your direction right now. When you started off, it was, it was very choppy and you use the word and a lot. The, yeah. you, that, that was about the only word that you use. You started off a number of sentences in a row with the word and. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can cut those out, but the fewer of those we have, the better, because it's just less work on my part. <laughs> I agree. And I, and I, and I, I just did it just now. I hate it when I do that with and, um. You actually didn't say um very often. I, I'm so, often not bad with ums. So my, my, my sort of a chain word is but or so. Yeah. And yeah. I'll I'll do that. You know, I'll add but or so over and over again. I use and also, but the but and the so are the ones that really stick out to me now. And I hear it and I'm just like, okay, let's stop. There are a few that I I'm gonna start over that I abuse a couple of recordings ago. Uh-huh. Nevertheless, and the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, you said both of those so a forth. couple of times. Yeah, you said a couple of those a couple of times, yeah. 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 Those are those are some of my heavily I, I think I'll probably leave those in and we'll just let this be what it is. This is that's that's the recommendation that I've seen. What 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 I've seen from uh you know as far as podcasting advice is that for the first five episodes, don't even try to edit it too heavy. Just let it you roll. You know, like let it roll. Fuck it. Like, we'll do it live. 
Yeah, like on on a, like, and I think the realistic aspect of that is that most people, I mean, it, it's just not going to get wide view, wide listening. You know, it's not yeah. going to have a wide audience. Yeah, and the if, if somebody like comes up and you know and like mo like we're looking at momentum happening, you know, as opposed to, uh, every, you know, like coming up hot off the start. You know, this it's, is it's getting, like a train starting at the station where it's this just, is chug, this chug, this chug, is seriously chug, chug. getting launched to crickets. You know, yeah. so it like yeah. really it's going to come up in search, and it's going to come up. Uh, and I'm gonna like you know I'll push it to to uh, the Twitter crowd. You know, like I I have uh, a little bit short of 1,200 Twitter followers, and so wow. that means that means that about you know. A hundred people will see it, you know, so then I'll, I'll, yeah. you know, so I'll tweet it, then I'll pin it, then I'll tweet it again. Um, I'll tweet it on the wet wired account as well, which only has about 24 followers. Um, yeah. so it's a, it's oh, a pretty, okay. the wet wired account has 24. I thought you were saying the wet wired account has, no, no, no. My personal one has 1200. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. a thousand times more sense. Yeah. So <laughs> the, uh, yeah. So that's not going to be obviously like a big draw. And, and my, my Twitter followers are not going to be a, a, like a great fit for this. Honestly, I don't know what the hell the common denominator is in my Twitter followers. I have no idea. I don't know who most of these people are or why they're following me. Or they don't like my stuff when I tweet, but they still follow me. I don't know. Maybe they don't even use Twitter anymore. I have no idea. You know, the, like I get, I, I get likes, but typically, you know, the, it's mostly when I'm responding to somebody else's tweets, you know, that's yeah. when I get, that's when I get all this attention and then I get more followers, but yet nobody ever like comments on my shit, you know, most yeah, often, at, you know, the, so I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like, you know, as far as who, you know, who's going to see this. So this is going to be, this is a slow start, you know, yeah. this is, yeah, I'm not too worried about any of that. But, uh, but we, I, I do, I do, I do say. I mean, while it was very unpleasant realization earlier, I, I kind of feel good about the fact that we were forced to do this again. Yeah, and I and feel we like can this came out so much better. And we can actually throw up this episode onto uh, onto SoundCloud without having to pay yet. You know, that's that's a really good thing. You know, the uh, oh, we'll yeah. Be, yeah, we'll be able to do it without having to pay. And then, you know, the next thing is to, uh, to subscribe to some, you know, some kind of like analytics platform for podcasts to see what people are doing and where they're listening to us and what apps and whatnot. Yeah. So, and I, I, oh, honestly, but by I, the, I kind of, by the way, before we go, we need to, uh, we need to do a quick outro. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and so let's, let's just make it chatty and the uh, and so I I'll lead us off and you know and set the tone. I've already kind of gone through how this goes, you know. The uh, okay. So I'll, I'll just start you do it that, off. I was, I was gonna say. Um... Oh, it's gone. Doesn't matter. Okay, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Wet Wired podcast. You can find us on social at Wet Wired on Twitter on Patreon, and oh, there it goes. Damn it. <laughs> Just froze at the end there. <laughs> uh, oh, before you do that, I, I just remember what I was going to tell you. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was that I, I actually am glad that we ran so much over on this one. 
Uh, because I feel like starting with a part one is is like such a great sure yeah start yeah to get people hooked for the next one yeah you know our five hear, friends you, and mothers you, you hear that people you're hooked you're all hooked <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna want to listen to you're gonna want to wait for this one we swear it'll 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 be up within six months <laughs> or your money back <laughs> yeah exactly yeah all, all, all of our, all of our, uh, of our Patreons will, uh, will get all of their money back. <laughs> Actually, I, I hate it when I, I said that kind of as a joke. They are not called Patreons. Everybody says that. I hear that so often. And thanks to all of our Patreons. No, Patron, Patreon is the name of the platform. They're still called patrons. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's not a new word. <laughs> it's they didn't come up with it. They didn't try to turn it into a noun for the people that are patronizing your account. <laughs> Which by the way, uh, it's it's a bummer that we didn't do our our uh our our patron uh joke earlier when we were talking about uh Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> we'll we'll catch it next time. Yeah, I don't I don't want to like uh I don't want to pr- prepare jokes. I want them to be off the cuff. <laughs> Well, it was yeah. great last time. Yeah, it, it was great last time because it was it came up naturally. It didn't come up naturally this time. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you for listening to the Wet Wired podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Wet Wired, on Instagram if we ever log into there again. And you can find us individually uh, by searching for our names on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram. I don't know. Where else are you, Julian? I'm on Facebook probably. You might be able to find us on Facebook. I will never reply to any of your messages. I may or may not add you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you like this episode, make sure to tune in for the next one when we release it in a couple of weeks. If you want to support us and help us to keep making more episodes, you can find us on Patreon at WetWired. Cool. That was good. That was fantastic. No. Did you do the thing that I did earlier? You gotta be kidding me. No, I'm just fucking with you. (laughs) (laughs) Role playing, man. Role playing. Come on. (sighs) Gotta reconcile those negative emotions. That was (laughs) the best gag. Fourth time's the charm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. A discussion of the work ethic brings up some very provocative questions. Do workplace ethics problems come from a lack of a work ethic? Where does your character fit into your work ethic? What is happening in our modern global work environment that conflicts with our traditional view of the work ethic? How can we instill a good work ethic in those entering the workforce or those already in it? Of course, everyone has something to say on the topic. Everyone has a story to tell. In discussing the work ethic, there are many issues in play, including 
cultural issues, generational issues, parenting, self-discipline, character, and many others. You need to understand that the work ethic, personal character, and ethical behavior at work are interconnected and are key factors in our professional ethical life.